Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grace Presbyterian Church. It's a delight to be here to, to share with you, not just with song, but also with uh, opening up of scripture so that we can hear this morning exactly why this day is so special as Christians and why it should be so special to everyone in this world. Um, our scripture passage is really, really short, and it comes from page three of your pew Bible in Genesis Genesis chapter 3, we're looking at one short little verse, verse 15, but it might be good to have your Bibles open as we will also um, kind of look at some of the surrounding verses. So Genesis chapter 3, and um, it's on our passages in page 3. So there are three most important events in the history of the world. The birth of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you think it through, it would make sense that if the birth of Jesus Christ is one of the three most important events in all of human history, you would think it would be mentioned not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. And it is. From the book of Genesis all the way to the very last in the book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, you find mention of Jesus' birth in one way or another. Today, our passage is the very first mention, <laughs> and it takes place, of all places, in the Garden of Eden. And so, our sermon is titled, Christmas in Eden. The verse I'm about to read comes after Adam and Eve had turned from God and brought this curse and sin and sorrow into our world. God will speak eventually to Eve and then Adam, but first he speaks to the one who tempted them, Satan, who was in the form of a serpent. And so that's our verse for today. God tells Satan what is coming. He pronounces Christmas in Eden. Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this word given to us. It truly is magnificent that at the very beginning of time, at the very first instance of human beings turning from you, you responded with grace and mercy and a promise. Help us to delight in this this morning. Help us to see and understand. And for those who have yet to trust in Christ, may they trust today, we pray. Amen. You know, I don't know if kids still do this, but when, when I was a boy, and there was some sort of conflict, maybe like on the playground or something, you'd often hear some kids say, I'm going to tell my dad, and when he finds out, he's going to come and beat you up. <laughs> I never once saw a dad come back and beat up any kid. How about you? <laughs> in a similar but more significant way, think about it. This world is crying out in all of its pain and its sorrow for some cosmic father to show up. Life is like living with one of those white noise machines turned all the way up. You know what those white noise machines are. They're, they're fine on a low volume. 
But if you turn them up really high, that noise can become very unsettling. Think about this, the world we live in. It's like a giant white noise machine turned up so high it's unbearable. Terrorism and wars and bombings and mass shootings and corruption and famine and political battles and cancer and COVID and hate speech and societal just total lack of self-control. The white noise is deafening. And so Christmas can be embraced as a distraction a time for taking our minds off the troubles of this world for but just a little bit, a, a time to hit pause and, and be nice for a few days. But that's not God's purpose for Christmas. It's not to be a distraction. No, Christmas is not a distraction from all that is wrong with this world. It is God's answer for all that is wrong with this world. And not just some things, you know, but everything. God hears all the white noise and sees all the bullying on the playground called Earth. And he says, Dad is coming to fix all of this. That's what God promises in Genesis 3, verse 15, when he speaks judgment to the serpent that represents Satan. It's the most amazing pronouncement in that short verse, the very beginning of the Bible, God tells Adam and Eve of his promise to defeat the one who's been the instrument of their failure. This is the very first appearance of grace in the Bible. And grace, when it comes upon us, it's surprising. So this morning, let us be surprised by the grace of God in his promise of Christmas in Eden. We'll divide our time under four short headings. Christmas in Eden begins with a curse, announces warfare, has an unlikely beginning, and promises both death and victory. First, Christmas in Eden begins with a curse. And the big idea here is this. God doesn't curse Adam and Eve. He curses God's enemy who tempted them. It seems like an odd way to describe Christmas, that it begins with a curse, but that is what God does to the serpent who represents Satan. The curse starts in verse 14, right before our passage. Here's what we read. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. God pronounces a curse on the fallen angel called Satan or the devil. Satan was originally a very high-ranking, very powerful angel who led one-third of the angelic host to rebel against God. In the Hebrew, the word literally means adversary. Here, the adversary sought to turn mankind from God, thereby destroying God's good creation. So God confronts him and judges him and says, you are cursed. Now contrast this with how God speaks to Adam and Eve. You would perhaps need to know the rest of the story surrounding this text, but after Adam ate the fruit and Eve as well, God came looking for them, not to curse them. He came asking questions, right? Remember, God said, did you eat of the fruit of which I told you not to? What is God doing here? 
God is giving Adam and Eve a chance to confess, to come clean and experience God's mercy, just like our kids with a cookie jar. Did you take a cookie? But instead, Adam does what we do so easily. He shifts blame to his wife, and then he blames God for giving him a wife. <laughs> How lovely. And then the wife, she just goes, eh, it was Satan, shifts the blame to him. The point I'm making is that God confronts them in kindness. But when it comes to the adversary, God asks no questions of him. He simply pronounces a curse. Because you have done this, cursed are you. Now, in the whole section of Genesis chapter 3, God is pronouncing judgment on all the parties. First to the serpent, then to the woman, and then to Adam. But notice God does not say to Eve, cursed are you, nor does he say to Adam, cursed are you. He does say to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. And why is this important that God does not curse Adam and Eve? Well, could you imagine what it would have been to live for all those years on earth like Adam did with everyone pointing at you and saying, this is all your fault? But that is not what God says to Adam. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. But to the serpent, he says, cursed are you. I don't mean to minimize Adam's sin. He failed big time. The curse that this world is under is real. It is unavoidable. And the problem is not just other people. As if, if you or I were Adam and Eve, then surely we would have done things differently. Listen, if the world were full of people just like you, it wouldn't be much different than it is today. The curse on this earth is everywhere, and we all suffer from it. But in cursing the adversary, there is a kernel of blessing and, and hope and promise of salvation for everyone who believes. We began this worship service singing Joy to the World, which has this amazing line in it. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Christmas in the garden begins with a curse. That's the first thing. Second, Christmas in uh, the Garden of Eden announces warfare. What we see here is God announces a real warfare against, between Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. I will put enmity. That's not a very common word today. I will put en, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You know, at first glance, warfare just doesn't seem all that gracious, <laughs> or good or wonderful. So how can this be a gracious promise? Why should we delight in God for this? I like how James Boyce, who I'm indebted to, writes on this. Here's what he says. Suppose God had not created enmity between Satan and the woman. In that case, Adam and Eve would have become like Satan. And from that time forward, they have seen, would have seen everything from Satan's warped and inverted perspective. That is, they would have considered God to be utterly evil one and Satan to be the savior. They would have loved evil and hated virtue. They would have called truth falsehood and falsehood truth. And so here's the point for us to think through. Although the human race is terribly corrupt, and it is, and although its idea of truth and falsehood and right and wrong are corrupted, 
Human beings, nevertheless, retain some idea of right and wrong, right? And this is the important thing. They approve of the good and oppose evil. And so think this through. Why is it when we sin, perhaps we, we get angry at our spouses or our kids or our co-workers or, or our boss, and, and we, we say something harsh, just really, really biting. I know we've all done this, not just me, right? Why is it that though we tend to want to make excuses for ourselves in the moment, why is it that we cannot lie down in our sin and enjoy it completely? It's because of this promise in the Garden of Eden. God has waged a war. He has brought enmity between Satan and his offspring and the offspring of the woman. And so this places limits upon how much sin can have its control upon us. And more importantly, it makes it so that we can hear God's voice and respond to him in spite of our misery. So Christmas in Eden begins with the curse and announces a warfare. Next, Christmas in Eden has an unlikely beginning. God promises the most unlikely hero to defeat Satan and involves a woman bearing a child, the offspring of promise. Again, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. You know, this promise of an offspring of the woman is a major theme in the book of Genesis, and as well, in Genesis as well as throughout the whole Bible. 41 times in the book of Genesis, the word seed or offspring or child, all the same word in the, in the Hebrew, um, is used to foreshadow a woman to come who will have a special child. The Bible as a whole promises a child who will be born, who will be the Messiah of God. And this theme is picked up in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. He quotes Isaiah, where we read, the angel said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament writes this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, you see what's going on here. Satan thought he was going to use the woman that God had created as his tool. He sought to abuse her, to misuse her, by bringing the destruction of the whole human race at its very outset. However, God says, Satan, that's your plan. <laughs> well, I am going to use a woman to bring the Savior of the world to come, and he will crush your head. It's really quite amazing. In the passage, God speaks to Satan, and he tells him exactly what he's going to do. It's kind of like a, a football coach before the game announcing his whole game plan. It's like, this is my game plan today. On the first play, we're going to rush for 50 yards right up the middle. And then on the second play, we're going to throw a Hail Mary. We're going to win the game. And so God is speaking to Satan. He's saying, this is what, exactly what I'm going to do. You thought that you were going to rob me of my glory? and do eternal damage to these human beings that I created in my own image. You, you sought to do it through this woman and this wicked deception of her. 
Well, here's what I'm going to do, Satan. I'm going to use a woman to bring the Savior of the world who's going to crush your head. Our salvation begins with a woman bearing a child, the promised offspring, who ultimately, the Apostle Paul says, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Earlier, Sharon read from 1 Corinthians, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This leads to our last point. Christmas in Eden begins with a curse, announces a warfare, and has an unlikely beginning. Lastly, we see that Christmas in Eden promises both death and victory. Genesis 3.15 makes it clear that our salvation begins with a promise of both death and victory. Look at the end of Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, please don't let this word bruise uh, confuse you. God is not promising mutual Charlie horses. <laughs> to bruise in the Hebrew means to strike a blow or to crush. In this case, death blows. Let me ask you, how, how does a man destroy a serpent? You know, it takes a stick, you know, and puts it on its neck and takes a rock, crushes its head, maybe steps on its head with its foot. How does a serpent, a poisonous serpent, kill a man? By striking at the heel, right? Now, you might have expected that God would have just stopped in Genesis 3.15 with, with killing of the serpent, where he would say, he, the offspring, he's, he's just going to bruise your head. All right, it's coming. It's going to take you out. But he doesn't stop there. And so it's interesting, it's poignant that God says, the offspring to come will have a victory over you, but he will have a victory over you at the cost of his own life. You will strike his heel. You will kill him. But in the killing of him, he will have victory over you. He will crush you. You see, our salvation begins with both a promise of death and victory. And this victory is costly. The only way that, that what Adam and Eve did could be reversed is for the seed of the woman to come to earth and take upon himself the sin of the world, to take upon him all the white noise, all the bullying. And so at the very outset of the Bible, God is saying, I have a Savior coming who will die for your sins and redeem you. This is the gospel preached in Genesis chapter 3. And listen, Adam and Eve believed this good news. And so they experienced God's mercy and grace and salvation. They are believers. How do we know this? Two reasons. First, Adam gives his wife a name. Part of that, he's just, it's just woman, you know, which means out of man. Adam's name means dirt, you know, so don't think he's that much better. But it's not until after all these curses that we read in verse 20, we read this. Right after Adam's cursed, 
or the, not Adam, the ground is cursed. Here's what we read. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Listen, the name Eve means life or life giver. And the reason Adam called the woman Eve is because of this promise in Eden, this Christmas. Adam must have been thinking along these lines. God warned us that, that, if, that we would die if we ate from this tree, but, and we ate of it, and we should die, but we, we didn't die. God came and he judged us, and now life is hard, it's miserable, but our death has been postponed. We can live for God. We can be fruitful and multiply. And even greater, God has promised a deliverer to come who's going to be bruised for us. He will suffer in our place. And because of him, Satan who deceived us will be destroyed. And now life, life with God belongs to us. That's what he was thinking, something along that. And so he says, I'm going to call you life giver. Because by your offspring, our Savior will come. Adam believed, and Eve believed too, because she mistakenly thought that her first child, Cain, would be this promised child. <laughs> Cain means, you know what Cain means? Here he is. That's what Cain means. Here he is. <laughs> I believe you. He's here. Little did she know that this child would be the world's first murderer. But she believed. The second reason we can know that they believed is this. Verse 21, which comes right after Adam naming Eve, this is what God's, this is what he did. Listen. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Do you remember what Adam and Eve put on themselves because they're embarrassed by their sin? What they put on themselves to cover themselves at first? Remember what it was? Leaves, right? I mean, you know, if you know much about leaves, they don't last very long. They kind of dry and crumble. They cannot provide a lasting covering. So what does God do? Listen, he provides the first ever sacrifice to cover one's sin. An animal was sacrificed so that God could place a lasting covering for sin over Adam and Eve. And this bloody sacrifice points to the mercy and the grace and the salvation that the offspring would one day provide. It's amazing, right? How loving is God? How merciful is God? He sees them where they're at. He provides them a covering, an atoning covering. And all this at the very beginning of the Bible makes you kind of believe more, doesn't it? So there it is, Christmas in Eden. God sent his son to live and to die and to rise for us. From the moment that sin entered into the world, God promised a savior to be born. And so, my friends, Christmas is not about trees and tinsel and gifts and stockings and stars. Christmas is about the deliverer from sin promised to our first parents way back in the Garden of Eden. And, of course, this deliverer has come 
He is the Lord Jesus Christ. The question for us this morning is, do you believe? Is Christmas just a distraction from all the white noise? Or have you, like Adam and Eve, staked your comfort and joy upon God's promised Savior? Will you let the peace of God, which is yours in Christ, quiet the white noise of this world for you? In a moment, we're going to sing, sing a song, Christmas song. It pro proclaims tidings. The word literally means good news. The opening lyric speaks of God's gracious work for us through Christ. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay, the white noise. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Let's pray. Father, we confess we think ourselves so smart and so good. We think that we know so much about how this world operates. And yet we see in this very simple text, at the very beginning of your word to us, not just of the sin, the white noise that has entered this world, but your plan for it, a child to be born in weakness so that we may find hope and joy. Help us also not this morning to be so puffed up with pride to think that Christ didn't come for us. We all need a Savior. We thank you that in Christ Jesus we do find peace and joy in this life now and in the age to come. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.